0: You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Thanks so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Good morning. morning. I'm uh, Pastor Jason, one of the pastors here at Schweitzer. It's a joy to be with you this morning. And we are not just in Springfield on a blowy Sunday morning, on a very windy Sunday morning. We are also in Narnia, so I would like to welcome you to Narnia, or at least odes of Narnia, tastes of Narnia, foretastes of Narnia. Do you see this, the lamppost here? This should be like, for those of us who are like C.S. Lewis Uber fans, this is like a dead giveaway, right? Everything else, it's like, welcome to the world of Narnia. Um, in the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, a number of of elements that take us back into that world of of Narnia, where, as as the opening video said, as that video said, where it's always winter, never Christmas. What does that mean? What does that look like? Always winter, never Christmas. Well, if you're a fan of C.S. Lewis and if you've ever watched the film uh, "Wardrobe," I forget seven books in that series of of Narnia books. But in the line the of Witch, in the Wardrobe, the first modern film that came out uh, takes us into that book, and we find when we enter into that book, when Peter, actually when Edmund and Lucy first find their way into Narnia always winter and never Christmas. And the reason it's always winter and never Christmas is because there's a spell that's been placed upon the land of Narnia by the white witch. And the white witch has done certain things within the land, so she's made it snowy all the time. Father Christmas is hindered from coming. Father Christmas who comes and he would bring gifts. And the white witch has cast a spell on the land of Narnia so that there are unique things that take place. Like when people have courage and they seek justice and they end up in the witch's castle, she turns them into stone statues. And so all around the white witch's castle, there are people who've had hope and have had courage, and yet they make their way into her courts and she makes them into stone. There are people who, knowing this, decide that it's best if you don't have hope or courage it's best if you play out the hand in life that you've been given in a way that is self-protective. And so they'll, they'll turn traitors to all kinds of people to make sure that they keep themselves protected in the land of Narnia. Other people have hope, but they have just a little hope and they bear it. They look for the coming of Aslan or Father Christmas. They wait, but they don't know the coming of the one who is light if they'll see Aslan in their midst. But they hope against hope. And then the four Pevensey children come into Narnia. And the world begins to change. Those who've fed themselves on the prophecy of old, that when the two daughters make their way into Narnia, then the lion will appear, the lion Aslan, who is good, but not tame. He isn't a tame lion, but he's a good lion. The world of Narnia is very much like our own world, where there are times where we, we seem to be living under a spell, where from time to time, those who have hope and those who have courage find that when they put themselves out in places where it requires hope and courage, that they're, re- they're rebuffed. Or when they go seeking justice, that justice is undone. There are those we live, when we look in this world, we find that those who seek justice decide that it's better to seek a world of self-protection to have a protected self. Sometimes in the place where we live, we can wonder as we look to ourselves and look at the surroundings and look at the stories that we live in and we wonder is it always winter and never Christ? where is it that God shows up when does God draw close to us we hear in the Advent stories and we've heard even this morning we've heard about the historical coming of Christ and sometimes in the songs that we sing we look to the future coming of Christ but in the places where we live in the present moment where does Christ draw close to us now? We long for that. Just like the people who lived in the land of Narnia long for the coming of Aslan in the present moment, we long for the present coming of Christ in our now. Well, one of the things that the people in Narnia would experience was that winter would give way to Christmas. And winter would see that the lion would come the prophecy wasn't just something that would, would feed people for a while and people would live on hope, but the prophecy would be fulfilled. It did draw close to us. And just like Aslan drew close, so does Christ. He draws close to us in all kinds of different places. Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about how Christ draws close to us in storms and in deserts and in floods. Today, we're going to look at the... At the story about how he draws close to us in storms he draws close to us in our present day in the day that we call now or today if you have your bibles with you I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 14 and we're going to look at a place we're not going to look at a a Christmas story uh, per se but we're going to look at this story where Jesus draws close to his disciples, and he draws close to us in the midst of a storm. Before we read this text, there's a couple of things we ought to know and we ought to familiar, familiarize ourselves with. Uh, we're going to find this story taking place after Jesus has, has fed the 5,000, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And right before the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus finds out that John the Baptist, his cousin, who's been a rather um, prolific prophet, well-known prophet, has had his head cut off because he's been speaking truth. And Jesus is somebody who's been speaking truth and he's been gaining a crowd. And people come out to hear him, people from all around Galilee, except people in his own hometown of Nazareth, don't want to hear Jesus. And so Jesus is in the Galilee region. He's away from his own hometown, but people come to see him People are interested in him because he's been healing people and they come close to him. So many so that he does the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 and then he begins to send people home. He sends the, those who, who ate that day, he sends them to their respective homes. To the disciples, the people he's been traveling with, he says to them, get in a boat and go back to a different place uh, around the region of Galilee. And then he goes off into the wilderness to pray. And this is what Matthew tells us in that moment. Immediately after this, or after after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. And night fell while he was there alone. Now, one of the things that we just ought to remember about the Sea of Galilee is that the Sea of Galilee is at most about seven and a half miles wide. And now where we think that Jesus did the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is on the north edge of the Sea of Galilee. And we think, especially by where they land, Matthew tells us where they land, that the disciples were gonna go about five and a half miles over to the, to the west and land at Gennesaret. Now, I don't know how long it takes you Once you get in a boat to go five and a half miles, but get this. He puts them in the boat before it's dark, okay? There's just all kinds of questions roaming through my mind as I I read through this text. He puts them in the boat before it's dark, and he sends them off. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble, far away from the land, for a strong wind had arisen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Just get that, before it's dark, they're still out on the sea at three o'clock in the morning. They're fighting. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified, and in their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost! But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage, I am here. Then Peter called out to him, Lord, if it's really you, say to me, call me to come walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said to Peter. So Peter went over the side of the boat and he walked on the water towards Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and he began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshiped him. You really are the son of God. They exclaimed. The word of God for the people of God. Disciples, starting out before it's dark, find themselves at three o'clock in the morning still on the lake on the Sea of Galilee. Going somewhat around five and a half miles. But they're in the midst of a storm. These disciples, many of them, are fishermen. They know what the Sea of Galilee is like. They're aware of what the storms on the Sea of Galilee are like. A couple years ago, I got to travel to, to Israel and I got to see what the sea looked like and it's something when you're in certain places you can see you can take in the whole Sea of Galilee it's about 12 and a half, 12 miles long and about seven and a half miles at its furthest width you can stand up and you can look at it from from the north to the south and east to the west you can see it all and they say that when the wind probably like the wind that we have today but when the wind comes roaring in from the the west and it hits the western coast where Tiberius is at when the wind hits that coast it creates waves on the sea of Galilee that can be a foot to a foot and a half tall now you may think how in the world does a foot to a foot and a half tall create uh, a wind that uh, waves that you have to fight against well around at one of the museums around this the uh the Sea of Galilee, we came across the boat, a boat that archaeologists and others think was from the time of Jesus. This boat is only about 25 feet long. It's just a few feet wide. This is kind of a boat that they say was what you would see if you would have been in the time of Jesus. You'd see this kind of used by by people who were engaged in, in fishing all over the Sea of Galilee. It's not very wide, but it's a boat that they think was from a couple thousand years ago. And the disciples would have been in a boat similar to this, or maybe a little longer, maybe a little wider. And they were fighting these waves. They were in the midst of a storm, a storm that they knew, a storm that they would have endured before, that they would have fought their way through just by by gritting it out, right? They would have known what a storm looked like on the Sea of Galilee. But this storm was going to be unlike any storm that they'd ever experienced or encountered. They didn't anticipate what was going to happen that night. At three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came walking close to them. He came walking out upon the water. Now the disciples, many of them we already know, had had some time in synagogues growing up in I, in Israel and growing up in a sy- synagogue they would heard stories of God the old stories of God and one of the things that the the Old Testament writers talked about is that there were many times when people walked through water Moses walked through water Joshua walked through water but there was only one person who ever walked on water and that was God and so here are these disciples they're in a boat At three o'clock in the morning, and they look up, and they see this figure walking towards them. And they're wondering in their mind, who in the world walks on water? There's only two things that they can imagine. It's either a ghost or it's God. And so they revert to a ghost, like who in the world is walking towards us? Notice this. Matthew tells us that they're really not afraid of the wind and the waves. They're not afraid of the storm that they're in the midst of. They're afraid of the figure that walks towards them because they don't know who it is. And so they cry out, who are you? And in that moment, Jesus calls back to them. It's I, don't be afraid, I'm here. In the midst of that storm, they were not looking for Jesus. And yet Jesus shows up. They weren't looking for him to come close to them. They didn't have it as a part of their own sense of expectation. When they were in the midst of that storm, they expected to stay there until they got to the other side of the lake. Or they expected to go down with their boat. But they didn't expect Jesus to show up. One of the things that's unique about the story of Jesus is that Jesus oftentimes shows up when he's not expected. When you go back and you look about, uh, you think about all the stories of Jesus and you think about even the stories of his birth, there were people who expected God to show up in certain ways, but never the way that he did. Like Herod, King Herod, who helped at, at the rebuilding of the temple. King Herod, who was part Jewish, but not fully Jewish. King Herod, who began to amass all kinds of power. King Herod, who would be who would hear the story about a baby being born in Bethlehem and send soldiers down to Bethlehem to to carry out a a great catastrophe. King Herod expected God to come in power. In fact, he expected himself to be anointed, the one, the, the sovereign one of God who was there to rule over Israel. King Herod was looking for power and he was hoping to be the one who was anointed. King Herod never expected a baby to be born. Or you think about the people who, who walked in the temple of Jerusalem. They expected Jesus to come in or they expected the Savior, the, the son of David, the son of God to come in to the temple riding on a horse someday and throwing off the chains of the oppressor Roman rule. But how did Jesus come? Well, he first came in in the arms of his mom and his dad as he came as a baby being carried by Mary. And old Anna and old Simeon came up and they spoke words of blessing and praise over him. People never expected the son of God to show up as a baby. Or you think about how Mary and Joseph experienced the intrusion of God into their own life. They were going along living their lives in the region of of Galilee in the little village of Nazareth. And all was going well, and they were engaged to betrothed to one another, and everything was simply humming along fine and dandy. And then an angel showed up, and he spoke words that would forever change their life. When Jesus shows up, the people don't really expect it. And yet, he comes close and he draws near. He's a good savior, but he's not tame. And when you're in the midst of the storm, it doesn't necessarily mean that we can just call out to him and he's there. Because he's not tame, he comes when he's ready. He comes when he's good and ready. He comes. And when he comes, he comes and he reveals a number of things about himself and about us. Notice that when Jesus calls out to Peter, when the disciples say, who are you? And he says, it's me. He says a few things, just a few lines of him um, that speak about himself and, and speaks about us. One of the things he says is this, he says, don't be afraid. He also says, take courage. And he says, I'm here. And then he says, come. All of these words that Jesus speaks are words that God has a way of speaking in the stories of the Old Testament, the stories that the disciples would have heard and known. For instance, every time God seems to show up in the Old Testament, when he reveals himself to Moses when he's up on the mountain, or when Moses is out trying to find a lost sheep and he runs into a burning branch is this, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God comes when he shows up and he speaks words about himself, words that he says over and over and over again. He says, don't be afraid. He says, take courage. The word take courage, that line take courage, is something that God, when he's speaking to somebody like Joshua, he says to Joshua over and over and over again, take courage. He says, I am here. Jesus is repeating the line that God has said to people over the pages of the Old Testament, people that he's encountered over and over and over again. The I am is here. The one who made the universe, the one who made you, the one who draws close to you is here and present to you now. Sometimes in the midst of storms, and storms can be a lot of different things, right? Storms can be the physical reality that we live in. Like how many of you woke up at some point during the night because that wind was blowing really loud. That was a fierce storm that was, it was hitting. I think I grew, woke up at 3 o'clock and at 4 o'clock and at 4.30 because that wind, that storm was just penetrating. Storms can be like that. But storms can also be things that we create. Storms, the kind of storms where we, where we do something or we say something or we lead in such a way that storms happen around us or storms can be something that happens to us because the environment in, in which we live, the things that are happening all around us can, can create a stormy environment. In the midst of, of this storm, When Jesus begins to reveal himself, when he begins to draw close, he begins to say things about who he is. I am the great I am. I'm the one who says things to you like, don't be afraid. You know, God says, don't be afraid 365 times in Scripture. He says, take courage. Take courage. As I think about some of the storms that we presently live in, some of the cultural storms, there are times, and this has happened all across the pages of history, there are times when people will come along and they'll say, I think God has got a new word for us, a word that we've never heard God say in the past. And they'll put it out there as if it's something new, like the Lord is going to lead in a new way, away from where He's led in the past. And the funny thing is, is that every time God shows up in the pages of scripture, there's a way where he keeps coming back to the things he said and the things he's done and the person he's been in the past. Like the Lord is the one who says, don't be afraid. And sometimes when people talk about new, new ways that God would lead us or new things that God would lead us, when there's fear present, there's, there's a fear fear because there's something in that new thing that isn't of God God says don't be afraid I am is here and then Jesus says something in that where he says take courage you know taking courage is like it's like a gift that Jesus gives to us courage is never experienced I've, I've experienced I don't know if you have, but courage is never something you can experience sitting down. Courage isn't something that you can experience just just being placid. Courage is something that you experience as you put one foot in front of the other. Courage is a gift that you experience as you move into into motion. This summer, I, I had to put a different roof on our house. And I have to tell you that I was afraid there was one part of the, of the roof in particular that I was very afraid of. And so I saved that until the last, until the last thing I had to do. I went on the, all the other parts that, that seemed safe to me, the places where if I fell off the roof, I'd land on grass because I was very afraid of falling off the roof. I went into the valleys because in the valleys, you could put both feet on, on the roof, right? I stayed away from the part of the roof that made me afraid. But I had to take courage. And courage wasn't just something that you could take hold of standing on the ground. Courage meant you had to get up on the roof and you had to put it in a motion. Jesus comes along and he says, Sometimes we have to take courage in the midst of a storm. And so Peter does. Peter hears that word of take courage and he says, if it's you who's calling out to me, tell me to come. Tell me to get out of this boat and walk on the water. And so Jesus says, come on, Peter, get out of that boat and walk on the water. Get out of that boat of safety. Get out of that boat of security. Get out of that boat of of the things that you've, you've become comfortable with, of the things that you know. Get out of the boat and walk on the water. A couple weeks ago, I got to do a celebration of life service for Clyde Gordon. Clyde Gordon left this world and went into the other world at the age of 85. Clyde and Norma, his wife, they came to Schweitzer about three years ago when they moved to Springfield to be with their kids. And they worshiped in the other building at 11 o'clock of modern worship. And when they came here, they were about 82 or 83 years of age. And they really stood out because they were the oldest people by about 40 years in that space. And when they would worship, <clears throat> both Clyde and Norman would raise their arms like this in the midst of songs. And I'm trying to, and, and they blew everything I knew about people who were in their 80s at a modern worship service. They just blew all of the boxes in my head. I don't know that I'd said anything about those boxes, but they blew those boxes up. They were out of the boat. And when he was in his dying days, Clyde said, I've written my memoirs and I'd like for you to read them before you have my celebration of life service. And so I took those memoirs and I read it. And it was a fascinating story. And let me just encourage all of you, regardless of what age you are in this space, give a gift to those who come after you. Take some time and record some of the stories of your own life, all kinds of stories, but especially of your walk with God. Clyde Gordon talked about his walk with God, and Clyde Gordon told throughout the pages of his memoirs about how he was raised in a pretty conservative Church of Christ experience, where you learned about the God of the past, the God who was present in the, in the past. And in fact, he included in his memoirs a, an article that his brother had written about the uh, kind of the Church of Christ's history. And he said, at least when he was growing up, that people thought if you wanted to experience the aliveness of God and the, and the aliveness of the Holy Spirit, you just had to open up the scriptures and read about it because the Holy Spirit was there in those pages. But it wasn't something that he would, you would necessarily experience in the present moment of now. And that's the way Clyde kind of approached life. Like we had to, we had to keep the commandments and we had to keep everything that we saw present there. But he really didn't know if there was something for his day in his moment now. And then in his mid-40s, he was thirsting for something different. And he went to a church... Actually, it was the Church of Christ. They began to say, you know what? If there's the presence of God with freshness and newness and power in the pages of Scripture, it ought to be something that we experience now. And so Clyde, if you will, was in his boat, traveling along in safety, gritting it out in the storms of life until somebody said, you ought to be able to see God show up and say his words of life to you right now where you're at. And so Clyde began to say, If that's you, Jesus, tell me to get out of the boat. And so we did. And so worship for Clyde went from being around other people who had raised their hands and he was like, I'm still not comfortable doing that. To somehow, some way, In the next 40 years of his life, when he finally showed up at Schweitzer, here he was. In the midst of worship songs that he just blew up all of our preconceived notions. He got out of his boat. Maybe he was like Peter along the way from some time where he's like, I don't know if I'm making, if I'm looking like a fool in this moment. I don't know if if I'm full of faith or full of doubt, but he was there. And he was longing and looking and expecting more of God. That didn't mean that the storms of life didn't keep assailing him, but the storms of life suddenly went away or everything was placid on the the sea that he was traveling on. It didn't mean that at all. But there was one thing it meant for Clyde Gordon's life, was that Jesus was present now. In the moment that he was living, Jesus was present. He's present to you. He's present to me. Sometimes we don't see him because the storms are thick and the storms are heavy, and we think he's somebody else, but he's present. We have to take courage, we have to be willing to get out of the boat. You've just listened to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co, and if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening.